You're listening to The Chopping Block, a weekly podcast from City Life Church where we normally have short informal conversations about the Bible and the meaning it has for our lives. But this week, we're doing something a little different. A few weeks ago, we had a discipleship conference at City Life. We gathered Friday evening and Saturday morning as Pastor John Stark from Apostles Church in New York City shared with us about finding a hidden life with Christ. Over the next few weeks, as our staff finishes up Jonah and prepares for the Advent season, we'll be sharing his messages from that conference here. If you weren't able to attend, enjoy hearing from John for the first time and getting a taste of what the conference was like. And if you were with us, you can take this as an opportunity to revisit what he shared and evaluate how you can apply it in your life. John's message for the first session was entitled, What is Holiness? Well, good evening. Uh, Again, my name's John. It's good to be with you. Um, I did grow up in Kansas City, Missouri. Um, So for the first 20 years of my life, I was a Midwesterner. I still feel that way. So if I can get a temperature of the room, is this, uh, is this a Wichita State shock? shock? Is that, that's a thing, right? So is that a thing here? Like, is, are we fans here? Okay. Um, sorry, was that offensive? I didn't mean to be immediately offensive. Um, is this a, is this a KU or K-State world? So if I said if I'm, I'm an MU, I grew up an MU fan, you'd be mad. I hate MU. I, no, I, I did grow up an MU fan, um, and I'm, I'm really sorry about that, but there's nothing I can do. It, you can only look back and repent, right? So, um, well, it's really good. It's really good to be with you. I've, I've heard really encouraging things. Um, about your church. Um, so I'm really excited to be here. I'm really hopeful to be here. I'm, I'm hopefully I can be an encouragement, but I'm expected to be encouraged as well from just your presence in your church. So thank you for inviting me and allowing me to be with you this weekend. I want to talk a little bit this evening, just sort of begin with uh, the theme of, of wholeness. Wholeness. Um, the way the Bible talks about wholeness, it goes even maybe a more sharper language with wholeheartedness. Think about the Psalms. In Psalm 9, uh, it goes, I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. Or Psalm 16:9, my whole being rejoices. Or Psalm 119:2, blessed are those who seek the Lord with their whole heart. All of it. How are you doing with that? Um, where there's no contradictory parts in your heart. No divisions of allegiances. No, no conflicting desires. Do you know what I mean by clicking, conflicting desires? You know what I'm talking about, right? I want six-pack abs. But I want pizza, too, right? It's, it's hard to have both. I, or I want deep friendships, but I also have personal and professional ambitions that keep me busy 
I'm just either working or sleeping, and so friendships are hard. Or maybe you have desires for intimacy with Christ in the morning, but you have conflicting desires to be entertained at night. And so it keeps those two things that you want. And then neither one are going well. Or I want to I glorify God with my life, but I also want to be glorified by men. Part of the good life is, is being able to seek one thing holy. Not H-O-L-Y, but holy, W-H-O-L-L-Y. Right, Psalm 27, 4, one thing have I asked of the Lord that I will seek after. One thing. Do you know the end of it? That I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. I want one thing. I want the presence of God. It's a unity of desires. Not just desiring only that. It's not what the Psalms is talking about. Psalms is talking about a kind of desire that orders all other desires. And so what I'd love to be able to imagine thinking about together, for many of us, maybe we're resonating that lack of wholeness, you know? Even me just looking over these notes again, I'm just feeling the pinch of the lack of wholeness. And so what does healing look like? I wonder what healing might look like for you this weekend. Just being able to live freely in Christ, free from sin, free from the pains or wounds or failures of the past. Am I, am I able to live free from anxiety? Can I live freely? These are the things that I'm desiring, I, I want to desire one thing. You, you know how many times the Bible, think about being uh, free from fear or free from anxiety. You know how many times the Bible says, don't be afraid? Like literally, you know how many times? How many? Why do you know that? I don't know that. I was just going to say, I don't know. That's a lot. That's one for every day, right? The Bible is focused on don't be afraid. A significant part of the good life is to seek what is good without any hindrance of fear or any hindrance of guilt or shame or pain or wounds. It's, it's the language of what the Hebrew says. It's put off all weights and run. Put all weights off and just run. That's wholeness. That's the good life. And the difficulty is that our culture has kind of defined wholeness differently, radically different. I was in some, I was walking with this young man. We were going through some pastoral counseling for months together. And he was walking through his sexual identity. He was trying to walk faithfully, faithfully with Jesus and with his sexuality. And he came to one uh, coffee and he mentioned to me that he had also uh, started going to see a therapist, which is fine. It's not like he was cheating me, cheating on me or anything, you know. Um, but he said, this is what he said, my therapist told me this. And I don't know, he, he didn't necessarily agree. He just wanted to hear what I thought. 
He was wrestling with it. His therapist says, you will never have a healthy identity formation or experience wholeness until you live more truthfully and authentically into your sexual identity and seek sexual fulfillment and freedom. You'll never be whole. You'll never be free. You'll never have mature identity formation unless you have that kind of freedom. Now set aside just uh, whether the therapist is right or wrong. I know, the, I know Christian ethics have a lot to say about that statement. But setting aside what she said or whether it's right or wrong, how did our society get to that place? My grandfather was a uh, farmer in central Missouri. Uh, and, you know, he went to MU. Sorry, I don't know. Uh, but in the 1950s, his son came up to him and says, you'll never have mature identity formation or wholeness until you walk more freely sexually. That would just be a confusing statement for him, right? Where did we get here? How, did, how, how are we being shaped as a people, not just out there, but how are we as Christians being shaped by our culture in this way? Sexual freedom and expression of the self is central to wholeness. So how did we get there. Well, can I um, just maybe walk us through a narrative of maybe how we got here culturally, all right? And then we'll see what Jesus has to say about that um, in Matthew 6. But do you mind if I just put my teaching hat on just for a minute, all right? And then I'll take it off and go back to retreat leader for a minute, okay? But just stick with me for a minute. How did we get here as a culture? Um, there's a term I just want to introduce to you. It's called expressive individualism. Expressive individualism. There's a book in the 1980s by Robert Bella called Habits of the Heart, and he was a sociologist. And he talked about somewhere along the way in our modern world from like back in Romanticism and Rousseau, if you remember back in your Philosophy 101 class, that somewhere in you, in you, there's a, there's a beautiful you. There's a perfect you. There's an authentic you. And the problem is, is that our society has rules and traditions and conventions and codes and taboos that, that is an inhibitor to the true self. And so what's most, most true of you has been tampered by society for a long time and you need to be free from the rules and the taboos of our world and just be you. What would you desire? What would you want if you were liberated from social constructions and the conventions of the world? What would you be like? Now that was in the 1800s and that wasn't as devious maybe as just being sexually free, but there's a little bit of that. But now it's a little bit more developed. It's built, built out by our society, by our systems. And what has developed since that sort of DNA form is that we begin to think about, th this is what it means to be whole, to let what's true of me on the inside out, to not let the world around me shape it. So if I could give you a definition of expressive individualism, it'd go something like this, that the highest ethical ideal is the liberation and the fulfillment of the self, of the individual. 
There's no wider framework outside of the self to shape my values, to shape my priorities. I don't know if you saw the movie The Fablemans. Do you remember this? It was last year. I think Steven Spielberg's sort of autobiography movie. I don't know if you knew that. It was a good movie. Um, but there's this one scene. Uh, it's not going to ruin the movie. But it's a really tense moment between Spielberg as a boy. He's called something different. But it's him and his mom in the kitchen. And they're having this heated argument because his mom's about to leave the family. And she's leaving the family because she won't, she's, she, her argument is, I won't be able to be me unless I go. I won't be able to be who I'm supposed to be. She tells her son, you must do what your heart says you have to. You don't owe anyone your life. Even if your heart leads you to leave your family, your commitments. You need to leave. It's, it's the most moral, ethical thing for you to do, to be yourself. So the, the true ethical center, that source of fulfillment doesn't come from outside of you, your community, your church, your obligations. But the true source of fulfillment is your desires. Um, Robert Bella, I mentioned that book, Habits of the Heart. He says, modern individuals are more articulate about self-fulfillment, what they want, who they want to be, and have difficult times articulating the richness of our commitments. So we can articulate what we want and who we want to be. We have a really hard time of saying who we're committed to, who we want to give our lives to sacrificially. Look, for expressive individualism, I get to express who I am, what I want and desires in this world. All commitments, whether it's marriage, whether it's my work, whether it's my community, whether it's my church community, they're all seen as enhancements to my well-being. Like a gym membership, right? You join a gym, as long as it feels like an enhancement and not an inhibitor to my well-being, I'm going to go. But the minute it doesn't, I'm just going to cancel my membership. And we begin to see all other kind of obligations Instead, less obligations like covenants and more like enhancements to my identity formation. Are you with me still? Are you following me? You okay? I know it's late. Maybe you're kind of drowning off. You needed a good nap. So there you go. But listen, um, if we could organize our thoughts a little bit there, if you think about it, there's, there's a therapeutic side to this, right? Remember my pastoral counseling session with, with my friend, Right? You will never be whole. You'll never, you, you, you'll never be mature in your identity formation unless you're sexually free. There's a therapeutic side to this, right? It can feel like the, the shadow side of it. I, I'm, I'm never sexually whole. I can never be who I'm supposed to be. Which, by the way, parents, if you're thinking about your young adult children or teen children, there's a there's a cultural pressure to be, to feel guilty if you aren't sexually active. Because sexual freedom is part of what it means to be whole. I'm, I'm, I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. To sort of walk in chastity or restraint. Sometimes in this world, it looks like you're not, there's something wrong with you. You're not whole. Nona Willis Aronowitz she uh, wrote for Teen Vogue 
the, it's not the bastion of New Testament sexual ethic. That, um, and she wrote a book called Bad Sex, Truth, Pleasure, and the Unfinished Revolution. I do not suggest this book. Um, but she is, it is interesting. Um, she, she's part of expressive individualism. Being who I'm supposed to be is mainly through my sexual freedom. But she says this. There's this little bit of moment where she speaks truthfully. She says, the overwhelming emotion that young women in our culture feel that says you can't be whole without sexual freedom, the main emotion that they feel is shame and guilt. Guilt for not expressing yourself as freely or sexually as our culture thinks you ought to be. Shame for not having the same sexual desire or excitement as the cultural heroes seem to think you ought to have. There's a kind of guilt. There's, a, there's, a, there's also a moral side of this, though, if you can kind of hint, see it there, right? A, a critic might say, well, we're just, this is just a selfish culture. It's lax morally, but actually it's, this is moralism driving this. It's driving this cultural formation. People feel as if it would be immoral, not right to follow their longings and their heart, even if it means breaking commitments or severing relationships that previously would have seen as you got to keep these things. This is what it means to be moral. You got to keep these relationships. You got to keep these institutions intact. I mean, think about all of our heroes in all of our movies now. It used to be those who would sacrifice personal well-being for others, that was the hero. But now the heroes in our movies are those who are brave enough to push off commitments in order to be who they're meant to be. And we're shaped by this. This is how we're formed. This is how we're beginning. Not just them out there, not the baddies out there. This is how we are being shaped. And any institution or community or relationship that diminishes your capacity to seek self-fulfillment and expression is now the oppressive regime and immoral, right? I mean, I, I grew up in the 1980s, and so and I became a Christian when I was about 13. And for the most part, uh, no one agreed with any of my beliefs, all my friends. They just thought they were weird. But they at least all assumed that I was more moral than them, right? I was the weird one, but I was the moral one. Now it's flipped. Well, I'm still weird, right? But now it's, Christians are oftentimes in many settings seen as the immoral bigot. So we have expressive individualism. Which leads to, and this is where maybe I want to kind of plant our imagination, it leads to a, what I would call a, a, a performative individualism. What I want to point out is that expressive individualism has sort of morphed into something more performative. That the freedom to define and to express yourself has really evolved in an obligation to express yourself in a very particular way that's culturally acceptable. So our, our culture supports individual expressions of your self-curated identity. It's rooting you to do that. It's rooting you on 
in self-fulfillment, reach for self-fulfillment. But at the same time, we experience a pretty conflicting message from our culture that if our self-expression doesn't meet certain socially constructed expectations, we'll be ignored, we'll be passed over, dismissed, or, or canceled, or whatever the term is now. We want to be ourselves, we do. And we want to be loved, we do. Our culture will rarely give us both. We want to be loved, and we want to be ourselves. And our culture tells us you can do that, but they'll rarely give us both. So if I gave you a definition of of performative individualism, it'd be a society that has internalized the idea that the markers of wholeness are primarily visible. Do you you follow me? The markers of what it means to be whole are things that you can see and put on display and show, right? Self-worth and identity are things that I I can show. The performance of the self has become more important than the reality of the self in in our culture. A friend of mine, um, (laughs) we were uh, doing some pastoral marriage counseling and she had to confess uh, to her husband that she was angry at him because he took a picture of her and posted it on the internet and she was sitting in her kitchen The problem is the kitchen doesn't give a picture, right? It doesn't have the countertops. It doesn't have the cabinetry, right? The tongue oil countertop doesn't have it. It doesn't give a picture of where they, a kind of success or kind of achievement that they would like to have at this point in life. And she was embarrassed. Now, that sounds really shallow. It was a pretty remarkable amount of self-awareness to confess that. But she'd also begin just to see how much the culture of performance had really begun to shape her. You can be who you are, right? Please be yourself. But if you want to be loved, if you want to be admired, if you want to be included, if you want to be on the right side of history, if you want to be sure to express yourself in a way that the people around you will see as lovable, admirable, and good, then you, you will need to portray yourself in a certain way. And it's exhausting, right? When you're living with the idea that the performance of the self is more important than the reality of the self, you become a really fragile person. And you become a really tired person. It's not a good life. But it's often one that It's the only way we really know how to feel safe in this world. Because the idea that you can be yourself and be loved, we want to be ourselves, but we will always choose love. And so that does mean that we begin to walk in a more fragile way, tossed to and fro, whatever way is going to bring us love and admiration to be received. So... What does Jesus have to say about it? Well, um, Jesus comes, I think, with words of wisdom and guidance. I'm going to just plant my time in Matthew 6. So um, if you have 
your Bible or your phone. Just maybe just have the first few verses open in front of you. Jesus comes with some guidance here when, you, when you're thinking about a, a performative way of life, of, of constantly feeling like you've got to put your life on display in a certain way in order to be received and adored and loved. He says in Matthew 6.1, this is the Sermon on the Mount, right? He says, beware of practicing your righteousness before others in order to be seen by them. Jesus is, is warning against the, the heart that has an impulse to trumpet itself, to put itself on display, to make sure you're seen and loved. We want to be seen. We want to be admired. And it, it's how many of us have sought how to be loved. And Jesus has some words for that. Cleverly, he, he doesn't, isn't it interesting? He doesn't... Uh, warn us against showing off our riches or our possessions or our skill sets or our, our balanced lives. But he warns us actually against trumpeting our virtues. Matthew 6 is not about the evils of sin. That was Matthew 5, right? If you uh, don't just murder, don't even be angry, don't just commit adultery, don't, even, don't just don't lust, Right, but here, so if Matthew 5 was talking about the sin behind the sin, the anger behind the murder, the, the lust behind the adultery, here he's talking about giving to the poor. He's talking about praying. He's talking about fasting. He's talking about the sin behind the virtues. So when you're, when you're trying to walk with virtue, don't trumpet your virtue. He gives these examples of giving to the poor, praying and fasting. And he says, when you give to the poor, sound no trumpet before you. Don't draw attention to yourself. Instead, give in secret so that the only one who knows that you're doing it is the Father. Do it in secret. Or when you pray, this is Matthew 6, 5 through 8. Don't give wordy, loud prayers Jesus warns against the examples of the Pharisees who just, who just loved to pray really well, who just knew all the right theological words to say to be really impressive, knew all the right pauses, the postures, when to exhale. <laughs> Even sounded holy, didn't it, right there when I did it? Heap up empty phrases as if God's just waiting for the right combination of words. Doesn't it feel that way sometimes? Like, oh man, that, that turn of phrase when I prayed, the Lord has got to answer that prayer. It was so beautiful. <laughs> Jesus is leading us away from using words that have no connection between your mouth and your heart. So you can see where that has all kinds of application in your life, Right? Don't, don't use words in a way that have no connection between your heart and your mouth and your mouth and your heart. But instead, when you pray, go to the inner room and close the door and pray to the Father in secret. And then the last virtue he was showing is fasting, which is the most dramatic of virtues, right? It's going hungry. You ever seen someone be really... I mean, some, some of you have kids, right? You're... Seeing them hungry, like, get that kid some food. 
real dramatic when they're hungry. And he warns against fasting in order to be seen. Right? When we're fasting, we're fasting sometimes for many different reasons. The Lord to answer prayer, or to maybe to, for some spiritual breakthroughs. But sometimes those aren't immediate enough. So we'd rather at least someone notice that we're fasting. Right? When you fast, he says, don't disfigure your face. It's that subtle ability as Christians who know, who know how to look humble. Do you know what I mean? So we also know how to maybe look like we're fasting. <laughs> right? You come in, you're slouching, and someone comes up to you. Oh, are you, you doing okay? Yeah. I'm fasting, right? <laughs> Jesus, don't do that. Don't do that. Don't, don't make it look like you are fasting. He commands you to actually, he says, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, which is actually the things you do after you've just eaten a meal. You, you need to look like you're doing pretty well, calorically, Right? When you fast, he says, fool others into thinking that you're eating. Which is interesting. I mean, do you see what Jesus is pointing out? When you fast, be careful what your face is telling other people. Make your face in a way that people don't know what you're doing. I mean, in some ways, don't be miserable. I know your inside feels miserable, but don't let your outside look miserable. It kind of seems like He's telling us to lie, right, a little bit, or to be dishonest, or not authentic at least, and we want to be authentic. But instead, Jesus is teaching us that, the, that even if your inside of your body is miserable, I want the face to give the impression that you're, you're doing great. Because he's here, he's, he's providing a principle that doesn't just cover fasting. It covers all of the virtues. That fasting is not just for those who can see the face, but it's for the one who can see the heart. So don't miss that principle, right? It, fasting is not just for the ones who can see the face, but it's for the one who can see the heart. Do, do you know how to fundamentally live for the one who, who can see your heart, not just for those who can just see your face? And this is the, the question to ask when you're trying to resist a performative world. Do I know how to live in a way that I'm not just living for those who can see my face, but I'm living for the one who can see the heart? And Matthew 6 isn't just thinking about prayer or fasting or giving to the poor. He's, he's trying to think about your whole life, the whole parts of your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. So when Matthew 6, when he's talking about fasting, do you see he's talking about a little bit of a, of a fast within a fast. That we're on the one hand, you're fasting from food, trying to stir and sustain your appetite for God, right? That's what fasting does. It, it stirs and sustains your appetite for God. But at the same time, you're fasting from the glory and praise of others since it's likely that you depend on that more than you think. It's a fast within a fast when you're fasting. 
which it means it has, it has some real potency to it when you fast. I don't know if you've ever thought about fasting in that way, but it has some real potency to help you die to the love of men and to the praise of men. It's a small crucifying power of doing things for God and with God in hiddenness and in secret, intentionally resisting praise from others. And it expands, expands your heart. There's this repeated phrase in Matthew 6. You see it in verse 4, verse 6, and verse 18, the phrase, and your father who sees in secret. Your father who sees in secret. Twice the father is described as the one who's in secret. He sees in secret, and he's in secret. Jesus isn't just saying that God only sees what you do in secret and then he doesn't see anything else. But he seems to be indifferent to the things that we do to dazzle others. And even more deeply, he's concerned of how we might behave apart from him and before others in order to form a sense that I'm doing okay, to form a, an identity, some, a, a sense of self-worth in this world. He's concerned about that. This is toil. This is trying to grab a hold of wind. Live your life primarily for the one who sees not just the face, but he sees the heart. We've been shaped to live as if the most important things about you are the things that you can perform before others, put on display. And it's making us miserable and anxious. And Jesus is, is telling us that the most important things about you, do you believe this? That the most important things in your life are, are done in secret before the Father who loves you simply because he loves you. Do you know, with the Father, you can be yourself and be loved. The thing that our culture promises us, only the Father can provide. Jesus lived this pattern in his own life. Um, you remember the story of uh, where he turned the water into wine? Wedding at Cana and John too. He started to gain a following. I mean, right? I mean... It's the guy who can knew how to throw a party in secret, basically, right? Uh, and he, he performed these great signs in verse 23, and a great crowd began to follow him and believe in him. But John shows how Jesus responded to the crowds in verse 24. He says, but Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. Jesus didn't entrust himself to them because he knew all people. Now, interestingly, we tend to think about um, this passage as what it's saying about us, that we're fallen, we're fickle. And John's gospel is all about that. It, it's all about the frailty of our belief. We're fickle, we're pushed, tossed to and fro. But it's also revealing not just what's in man, Jesus knew what was in man, but it's also talking about what's 
in Jesus. He did not entrust, he did not entrust himself to them. He, he knew how to practice the principle of Matthew 6 of resisting the world's praise. He knew how to walk it out. He entrusted himself to something deeper than man's approval, a deeper reward, you know, so to speak. It's almost as if Jesus is walking in his incarnated, incarnated life, walking in this world, singing to himself Psalm 102. You know how Psalm 102 goes? They will perish, but you, O Lord, will remain. They will wear out like a garment, but you are the same, and your years have no end. He was living in that reality. So if you consider the end of John's gospel, it's interesting how the gospel bookends this way. The praises of man are gone, right? And the people were crying, crucify him, trying to exchange his life for Barabbas. And Jesus could quietly, like a lamb being led to a slaughter, right? He could quietly embrace the cross because his life never depended upon the praise of man in the first place. He was still living on the same power all the way to the cross. Do You see, Jesus had a heart that could endure the cross and be slandered for righteousness' sake because he also had a heart that was hidden in secret with the Father who loved him. Now here's, here's what I want you to see that the heart that takes these small crucifying steps of learning how to resist praise from others in order to be formed into a heart that can pick up its cross with Jesus, even or especially when it costs so deeply. Jesus is, in the, in the Sermon on the Mount, is actually helping us be people who are formed into Ones who can go to the cross with Jesus. To give up on the praise of man and listen for the words of the Father. Remember what the Father says over Jesus at his baptism? You are my son in whom I'm well pleased. You're my beloved son. And we have it because we're in Christ. We have the same thing set over us. Do you know this? If you're in Christ, what's true of Christ is true of you. What belongs to Christ belongs to you. You are my son, the Father says, in whom I'm well pleased. I'm, you're my beloved daughter, my beloved son. And that was just the, the power and the voice that Jesus was just living in. The thing is, you have that too. That's yours. And so Jesus takes us one step further, and I'm, I'm finishing up here. He says in verse 3, But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. That's a strange phrase, right? You ever wondered what that meant? I used to wash windows in college, and I was washing a friend of the family's, and it was these beautiful windows uh, and I was washing them, took all day, and the husband came up to me and paid me, and it was... I didn't get that. Well, Did I didn't either, that? so... <laughs> um, 
he gave me well under what I charged. It was fine. He's a friend. And uh, I went to my car, put my stuff away, and the wife comes up and hands me, I think, a, like a 20. She's like, don't let the left hand know what the right hand is doing. <laughs> it was, I appreciated the bump. That was terrible interpretation of what, uh, <laughs> what the Bible means, what Jesus means. It's a strange phrase, but Jesus is actually encouraging us to do some deep, deep work here that of resisting practicing your righteousness before others, but also before yourself as well. Don't let the right hand know what the left hand is doing. There shouldn't be external trumpets that you're looking for and internal trumpets either. Why? Because we have a tendency to justify ourselves, to look for the inner trumpets. The problem is the world is fickle in its love for you. If you live for the praise of man, it will be so fickle. And your heart is so fickle. There's a reason why John in 1 John says, when your hearts condemn you, God is greater than your heart. Your heart will condemn you. Don't Outer trumpets and inner trumpets, silence them. And listen for the voice of the Father who's greater than the world because he's overcome the world and he's greater than your heart. Jesus isn't just being nitpicky about who you should be listening to. He's trying to liberate you from having to impress yourself and depress others. It's this hard inner and outer war, right, with, with others. Do you think I'm doing okay? And with yourself, am I doing okay? Jesus wants you to be free and whole. He's trying to teach us to live not for the eyes of others and not for the eyes of our own hearts, but to live in the secret place with the Father. Let me pray for us. Um, Father, I pray... Um, that that voice over Jesus that you said over him, you're my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Would that speak really loudly tonight? Over the voice of the world or over the, the voice of our own hearts? Would we be able to receive that voice and listen to it in secret? Would you help us to take those small crucifying steps of giving up on the praise of the world and giving up on our own inner praise and to receive what you have for us? What's, what you've given Christ, you've given us. We are co-heirs. Would you help us to live more freely there, Lord? We ask in the name of Jesus, amen. If you want to find out more about City Life Church, or have any questions about the kinds of things we talked about today, you can head over to citylifechurch.org and fill out a digital connect card. We'd love to reach out and stay in touch with you. Thanks for listening.